Welcome to the Resourceful HDR podcast. I'm Sally Purcell, and in this podcast, I explore high degree research, HDR, career and employment experiences, how individuals have made career decisions, navigated transitions, and helped others to build a career. In Australia, HDR usually includes Master of Research, PhDs, and professional doctorates. I hope you enjoy this podcast. This episode of the Resourceful HDR podcast was recorded via Zoom, so I apologise for any sound issues. My guest today on the Resourceful HDR podcast is Kim Eberhardt. Kim is a professional archivist and historian and is the head of historical services for Westpac Group. Kim contributed to the book produced for the bank's 200th anniversary and also arranged for the listing of the bank's earliest records, dating from 1816, on UNESCO's Memory of the World Register. Kim's 25-year career has been spent principally in the private sector, with community-based organisations, businesses, religious orders and independent schools. Kim holds a bachelor's degree in communications from UTS and a Master of Information Management from UNSW. She is currently working towards her doctorate at ACU, focusing on record-keeping in the private sector, particularly in relation to the Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse. A former president of the Australian Society of Archivists and member of the Executive Board of the International Council on Archives, Kim was one of the authors of the Universal Declaration on Archives, which was adopted by UNESCO in 2011. A passionate advocate of records, archives and the stories they hold, Kim has also written a number of award-winning publications, including the Centenary History of North Sydney Boys High School and In Good Faith, Waverley College and the Great War. She also writes for the profession with a number of journal articles and industry standard textbooks to her credit. Kim is also proud mother of a 17-year-old and the only daughter of accidental migrants from Germany. Thanks for joining me, Kim. Hi, Sally. Thanks for having me. So in our conversation a couple of weeks ago, you spoke about your parents and how they emigrated from Germany and how this family background influenced your choices when you finished your HSC. Could you talk about that? Yeah, sure. Look, uh, like most migrant kids, you you end up inheriting a fair bit of the baggage that your parents sort of bring with them, so to speak. And I guess there's two parts to this. They were children during the Second World War, when in Germany, as you can imagine, all sorts of awful things happened to all sorts of people, including academics and people who were of a professional class. If they were seen as a threat, they were very quietly, but very quickly removed. So that was I guess, embedded deep into their psyches. Fast forward post-war, they went on an adventure, came out to Australia, came with nothing. My mother didn't speak English. So there's all of those sorts of things that go with it. And they very quickly saw that the only way to get a good life was to have a good job. And for them, with the fear of that professional class idea, the idea of a good job kind of got narrowed down into something that they could easily identify, like doctor, lawyer, accountant, those sorts of things. And as a a relatively bright kid, it was kind of put on me that I needed to be one of those things. The fact that I didn't have a brain for any of those sorts of things kind of didn't come into account. So I blindly went ahead and decided I was going to be a doctor and therefore I could do physics, chemistry and all the rest of it until I got to year 11. I sat my first set of physics and chemistry exams and for the first time in my life I failed something. And it was this revelation that you couldn't just blindly go ahead and do something just because you thought you could, you actually had to adapt yourself to your own skill set. 
And that late in that kind of process, there wasn't that much left to me. So I wanted to pursue some sort of history background because that was what I was particularly good at. And my father was absolutely adamant that he was not going to have an academic in the family. So if I was going to do something with my skill set, it had to be something that he understood. So therefore, I launched into communications at UTS and unhappily finished that degree and ended up in that space for a little while. But it was almost as if I was just proving to him that I could do journalism, which he understood, but I didn't want to. And now I've ticked your box. Now it's time for me to do mine. You knew in your heart you wanted to be an historian. And may I just have a little bit of an editorial there in terms of what's going on in universities where this idea of the arts is not valuable, yet here you are working at a very large corporation and so many others I know are, and then trying to fit people in because there's a need rather than saying, well, this is a human being and they will flourish when they're choosing something that fits who they are and what their natural strengths and skill sets are. So, you know, it's very good that you did that. You did have to go through that process because you want to be an historian, but because of all those influences, which have a major impact, you end up working in PR because of your major in communications, (laughs) but you quickly realised that you needed to change your direction. So then you chose to train as a librarian. How did you end up focusing on archives? (laughs) This is another one of of make do. The course that was available to me at the time was post-grad course and it was at UNSW and it was a combined library and archives course. Now I applied thinking oh good I'll do that one because it's got library in it only to discover that the classes that I wanted to go to were only available at a particular time and they didn't fit with the fact that I was working. So I ended up doing the archives classes because I could get to those around work. Fortuitously, the the very first class I went to, I met um, an amazing, amazing man called Dr. Peter Olovich, who had headed that archive stream at UNSW since its inception. And he took one look at me and we kind of realised that I'd found my home. You know, this was the place where my passion for that sort of stuff, as well as this idea that you had to be somehow applying what you were doing, fit into this world. And I, I honestly, I felt like I'd come home. I think I was 26 or 27. And I finally got to this place where my passions were understood. So after that, it was just like, oh, it was an absolute dream. It was fantastic. I think it was the most satisfying year of my life doing that course, even though it was difficult because it was around work and it certainly wasn't ticking the library boxes. It was launching into this space that I'd never heard of before and confused my father no end. It was fabulous. And I honestly have never looked back. 25 years later, it's still a joy. Uh, it's such a lucky break, isn't it? And that there's so much research around that with careers, yeah. that how much of luck plays a part. And I just read an article where it was talking about this whole first you follow your passions. But the thing is, how do you know what they are if you haven't had any experience? You know, so many people say, what will I do? And I say, well, what do you know? What have you done? What have you experienced? How much do you know yourself? And you were making decisions based in practicalities because I'm working and I have to do this at night. And here's this wonderful serendipitous event that you this lecturer say this is it and it's headed you down this path now and being an archivist it's a pretty small profession (laughs) so how did you manage to get work in that field in the first instance 
In the first instance, Peter Olovich, the same person I've been speaking about, he was kind of the go-to in New South Wales for any organisation or any agency that needed someone to come and look after their archives. And often these roles were like for two or three weeks or two or three months. They were usually really, really temporary roles. And one came up, uh, ironically, at Westpac almost towards the end of my course, and it was a three-week placement. And he said to me, this would be ideal for you. It's three weeks. I know it's not much, but he said, I think you should give it a go. And I ummed and ahed and ummed and ahed and I thought, oh, my God, I'm throwing away a job that I've had for seven years that pays really well, that I'm really comfortable in, that I know all these industry contacts, and yet here I'm being offered a three-week tenuous bottom-of-the-rung position And then someone said to me, well, if you don't take it, why on earth have you bothered doing this course? And I thought, okay, have to put my money where my mouth is. Let's take the leap and let's go. So I took that three-week position, spent three weeks in almost sub-zero conditions going through stuff that was so dirty. Honestly, I had to wear the 1997 version of PPE to deal with it. But I was as happy as, and after that three-week placement, other small jobs came in and that sort of continued on for the next two or three years. So they are the risks that people take and we often talk in careers about what compromises you make. Lucky that person said that to you too. It's overcoming that fear and it's it's not just a fear of the unknown. It was actually also economically driven. You know, how, how do I maintain my commitments if I don't have a, a steady income stream? But then balancing all of that against what this person had said to me, I thought, well, yeah, okay, I could continue in a job that makes me unhappy forever or I could take this wild leap, take the three weeks and and literally just see what happens. And thankfully I was free enough to be able to do it at that stage. So it did work out, which is really cool. Yeah, circumstances do dictate a lot of choices. But also, you know, you could have done that three weeks and then said, okay, nothing's come of that after, you know, you set yourself a time frame and then, okay, now I'll go and find other work. But you gave it a go and that's reaped so many benefits. Yep. So I'm interested in when we're having a previous conversation about your work in faith-based organisations as well as with New South Wales state records and within a corporate setting. So you've had this incredible variety of archival work. What have you learned about the differences between the way that archives are managed in state and private organisations? There's one main difference, and that is in the public sector, so in government agencies, and this is true for every state and every Commonwealth agency, record keeping is mandated by legislation. So there's an Act of Parliament that says, thou shalt create records, and it creates an agency that is to be staffed by professional people that will look after those records and help make records management decisions. In the private sector, so in corporate world and also in the faith-based space, there is no such legislation. So you are flying by the seat of your pants and you almost make things up as they go along. I could tell you endless examples of record-keeping that did not happen in both corporate spaces and in the faith-based sector and that to me, just sort of triggered some alarms. Whether you're public or private is kind of arbitrary. If you take a big step out and you have a look at Australian society as a whole, we don't just want to keep the stuff that's mandated by law. We want to be inclusive and capture all the things that are out there that happen and that we partake of as a society. And that 
is equally valid as the stuff that's happening through government. So I couldn't understand why all the rules and regulations and the guidance that existed in the the public sector wasn't equally applicable in these other spaces. One of the first temporary roles that I had had was actually training New South Wales government public servants in the use of the new State Records Act and what the implications of that were for them. So by the end of this six-month placement, I knew that State Records Act like the back of my hand. So when I did land a role in a faith-based organisation, I actually took those rules and regulations and that framework with me. And I also recognised that that was sort of best practice that was happening elsewhere in the world. So in Canada and in Europe and in the UK, everybody, regardless of whether they were public or private, were doing their best in terms of records management and archival management according to these very similar rules and regs. So to me, it was a no-brainer that that was just what you did. And I would come up against people saying to me, well, we don't have to do that. Why are we doing it? So that has become a bit of a a professional thing for me. And I guess we'll talk later about this has actually inspired my PhD. So it's about taking a known framework from one sector and wanting to apply it somewhere else. Because I understand that all this stuff, all human activity is equally valid. And there are exactly the same reactions in if you don't have records, whether it's in the, the private sector or the public sector. You know, we could talk all day about relatively recent incidences where things have been shown to be exactly that. Someone with your perspective is that you understand what's needed in the future. You know, you can almost project yourself forward to be able to look back and say, okay, right now we need to be gathering all this information and recording it and keeping it well so that it will tell the story. Absolutely. You know, I work in a corporate sector where we've just, well, in 2017, we commemorated this organisation's 200th anniversary. And pretty much sort of the month after all the celebrations ended, I said to my then boss, okay, let's start on the 250th. And she looked at me as if I was absolutely nuts. But my, my mantra has been that, you know, my legacy, as well as having done that for the 200th, my legacy has to be leaving enough material for my successes to actually be able to support what's happened in that 50 years between now and, and when they celebrate the 250th. So it is that framework. It's almost inverting things and saying, well, you know, the stuff we do today is, is history. So one of those, those mantras that you take with you. Makes a lot of sense to me. And talking to you has really made it clear to me. And I imagine that people are surprised when you tell them what you do and particularly where you work. (laughs) Very much. I've been described as an activist and I've been described as the person who looks after old stuff and my job is to manage the museum, but actually it's not. It's to manage the records and historical documentation, I guess, that surrounds Australia's oldest bank and first company. So I work for Westpac as their head of historical services. So I'm their archivist and historian, which is pretty cool. And if you remember, I said to you early on, my very first position was at Westpac for that three-week job. So I've kind of come home, which is this incredible circle that took 20 years to get there, but here I am. So, yeah. Yes, it's another great story, isn't it? When we're talking about they tell stories or these archives, your own history. Obviously, I'm interested in stories. This is why I do a podcast and I work in careers and listen to people's stories and help people frame their stories. Could you talk about your experience in archives and how archives tell that 
bigger story for us? Yes, absolutely. I'll use Westpac as a classic example because as well as being Australia's oldest company, it is actually intrinsically wound up in Australia's economic history. You know, the bank was created in 1817 to provide a trustworthy mechanism that would allow the traders and the merchants who were filling up Sydney town at that stage, some of whom were expired convicts, to actually set up businesses and to trade on more than just promises. So it's the first economic mechanism, if you like, that existed in what was still a penal colony at that stage that allowed things like wheat and wool and eventually meat and, of course, after 1850, gold to be exchanged for wealth. So as well as that colonial history, you've got the threads of mercantile and trading history, you've got the threads of geographic expansion, literally started in Sydney, but then as the population grew and as urban centres grew up and as gold rush towns developed, the bank was in there trying to get a bit of the business. So we've got that geographic story, but we've also got the economic story of those tiny little towns that that have been through so many ups and downs, you know, Creswick in Victoria and Ballarat and Bathurst and Rockhampton, places like that, that were built initially on mining, eventually had to find other means of economic support as that gold ran out or whatever it was that initially attracted people ran out. So we've got those threads of how a community adapts to change. On top of that, we've got basically industrial relations history in Australia. You know, you've got an organisation that needs to employ people in order to carry out its business. So I can tell you what the conditions were in 1862 when we employed our first people, and that included them literally sleeping on the branch premises with the revolver under their pillow, right through to today's major sort of changes where the bank actually asks its people whether they're happy with this particular enterprise agreement. You know, that sort of thing, 150 years or 200 years of employer-employee relations are encapsulated in our collection. The employment of women. We employed our first two in 1898 and they were allowed to use the typewriters because that was considered just too dull for the guys to do. Fast forward to the First World War, 70% of the staff enlist. So therefore, the board grudgingly goes, oh, okay, well, I suppose we'll have to employ a whole lot of girls to take up the backroom stuff. They get rid of them in 1919 or actually 1920 after the 1919 Spanish flu. But then come 1939, we're in the same predicament. The boys are all enlisting again. Oh, God, we're going to have to get some more girls. So they do. And this time they realise that the women actually provide a significant contribution. So therefore, maybe we might keep them. Couldn't possibly have them in customer-facing roles, though, because that was entirely too threatening. It took until 1961 for that to happen. So the idea that you've got women like me and like my peers actually managing elements of the bank is taken for granted now, and it's something that the bank actually talks about and, and cheers about. But you take that back 80 or 100 or 120 years, and it was utterly, utterly unheard of. So we've got social history that's encapsulated in that collection as well. And that, to me, is, is one of the absolute fundamentals of what this collection represents. It's, it's not just dry banking history, which, you know, in some cases it actually is, but it's also social history. It's Australia's economic history. I'm often asked about our relationship with the central bank and with Combank and with the Mint and, and the idea that you would have an organisation that used to print, literally used to print money 
you know, you say that to people now and they look at you as if you're an absolute lunatic, but that is actually what we were mandated to do prior to Federation. So there's the practical elements of it as well as those social history threads which just fascinate me and I could literally talk to you about them all day. And I could probably listen to you all day. <laughs> and how I found you was via LinkedIn and, and I was reading stories from Westpac Choir and yep. I read the one that Emma Foster, you know, who's the deputy yep. editor, there was the piece about the women in Westpac who really sort of made sure superannuation happened for women. Yes. Absolutely. And th th one of them was one of the very first female employees from 1898. And by that, she'd stayed with the bank through its ups and downs, and she was ready to retire in 1938. And she could see that her male peers were entitled to this lovely pension after their 40 years of service. And she wasn't because she was not employed under the same conditions and therefore did not have access to what is effectively a superannuation fund. So she lobbied and agitated until the bank had to give in and say, well, actually, no, there aren't any differences between your contribution and what the men have done. So therefore, here's the super fund for women. It was still managed separately and it was still called the women's super fund. There was no such thing as lumping everything together. But at least she'd won that victory and, and had allowed access to that sort of thing, which to me... That's phenomenal. We should understand that in an age where we all think we're entitled to things equally. Way back then in the 30s when she was thinking of retirement, any pension that she might have received or any gratuity that she might have received from the government had to be paid to a responsible male, not to herself. You know, and that I, I, can't, I cannot get my head around that. And yet here we are a couple of generations on and it's because of the pioneering work of people like her that we can take a lot of what we take for granted, for granted. What was her name again? Beatrice Tennyson Miller. Fabulous name. She um, occasionally went under the name of Beatrice, sometimes Tennyson, but mostly she was just Miss Miller. We had this incredible photo of her in the 50s. You know, you think the curly hat and the literally starched hair and the big big flowery dress you just imagine her being this formidable woman that was employed as a 16 year old and wasn't allowed to talk to any of the men but I absolutely can imagine her at the end of her career terrifying quite a few male juniors so she might have got her own back in that regard <laughs> just amazing well thank you Beatrice Tennyson Miller indeed so while you're working full-time you're completing your PhD <laughs> I am. <laughs> yes, some people would wonder whether you're really doing yourself a service there. But can you talk about how you made the decision to enrol in a PhD and how do you feel having the PhD will help you in your career? I mean, you already have a good career. What would lead you to do a PhD? Okay, so it's mainly personal motivation. It, it's sort of me fulfilling the, the things that happened, you know, way back in 1983 when I was in year 11. And, and my shortcomings were first exposed. This is about me saying to myself, actually, you haven't failed, it's okay. So having that, that external recognition for what I think I'm capable of is important. But I also think that as the archivist that works in a corporation whose core business is not record keeping, I need to have something other than an arbitrary title to give me a platform to say, excuse me, but records and archives are really important and here is why. So it's 
it's about saying I've thought about this and I've written about this and it's this is this isn't just me and my thought bubbles this is me and some peer-reviewed highly highly stringent processes and methodologies adopted and adapted they all agree with what I'm saying and here is the proof of it so it's about putting that 25 year thing that's been in the back of my head that's questioning why we have gaps in the private sector in terms of record keeping requirements It's exploring what happens when you have that. And we've got Royal Commissions and Commissions of Inquiry over the past 30 years that have done that in abundance. It's trying to have a look at what existing frameworks there might be in the private sector. And they are there. They're just extremely well hidden. And pulling those out and saying to everyone, well, look, it's here. Just because it isn't specifically mandated by a piece of law, you might have a social or a moral obligation to think about the implication of what non-record keeping means. So it's throwing a whole lot of those ideas around and pulling them back together and then coming up with a piece of work that is recognised not just by me but by another academic institution so that it, it, it carries the weight that seems to go with consultants and goodness knows who else that are employed to do these things in the hope that maybe, maybe I can leave something of a substantial legacy in that regard. Yes, as you say, with the Royal Commissions, you know, we've talked about working in faith-based organisations that records how there's been such a lack, whether that will make that change, but you have to make it your mission, I suppose. Indeed, you've got to have a line in the sand that says, well, okay, here was this study and it said this. At this point in time, we do not have the study that says this. We've got a Royal Commission and endless numbers of other commissions of inquiry that are constituted differently saying this is what happens when you do this but as we all know it's very easy to ignore the recommendations that come out of those sorts of things you know I'm not assuming that my PhD is going to change everything either but it's another voice to add to a growing swell of people who are impacted by this actually saying well hang on, maybe we should have another look at this. Maybe we should think about what record keeping means to us. You know, in in parts of Europe, they do not have this artificial divide between public and private. In Canada, they do not have this artificial divide between public and private. There's a, a sort of macro level view of what record keeping and what archives are and an acknowledgement that activity happens in all sorts of spaces and ways and means and if we're going to leave a legacy from one generation to another we need to be holistic about that so I'm hoping that maybe we could start a conversation about uh, a broader view of what record keeping means because no records or very few records or random destruction of records actually has an impact on people in ways that I think we're only just beginning to see. Having that wonderful training in archives How has that helped you with your PhD? I mean, I talk to a lot of PhDs and and people trying to get their head around, you know, the the detail, the literature searches, gathering of information and understanding what parts to highlight and what not to. So you've got this wonderful background. So how has that helped you in your PhD? And therefore, what tips would you give to current PhDs? Do you know, I hadn't actually thought about this until you asked me because managing information is what I literally what I do for a living. Finding data sources, making sure that I've got those sources captured and annotated, writing up bits and pieces of contextual information based on those data sources is second nature to me. 
So I've almost been doing it since this idea kind of first came to me. So now I have this incredible data set that's based on me doing information gathering practices. People keep asking me whether I'm going to use EndNote and I just look at them and shake my head and think, oh, why, why would I do that? That could just be me being a Luddite, but actually I don't need it because I instinctively note down my sources anyway. What I would say to absolutely anybody that's starting this journey, do not ever, ever go past something that you find that is really interesting without actually making a note of where you found it, (laughs) when you found it, what page number it was on, all of those sorts of details, because trust me, you'll never be able to find it again. (laughs) This happened to me. I should share this with you, actually. I'm embarrassed about this. I was doing some research for another story for Westpac Wire the other day on Remembrance Day. And I I came across this reference and thought, oh, I need that for later. I'll just come back to that in a minute. Didn't capture it. I spent three days looking for it again. So do not do it. Just, you know, it's as boring as, but it, it is the foundation of what you're trying to say. It's the difference between you coming up with an opinion piece or some thought bubbles and you coming up with a cogent argument that is backed up by somebody else's published thoughts or some actual raw data. So do not, do not go past those references, even if they're fleeting. Yes, we always say, I'll remember that. Yeah, no, we don't. (laughs) And don't use post-it notes either. I have to admit, often just email myself things. They're really good tips. So I know that it hasn't been an easy path for you with this PhD. So could you talk about some of the challenges that you've experienced along the way? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The first one was finding the right niche for this. It is about record keeping in the private sector, but it's based on the commissions of inquiry that have been held into abuse of children over the past 30 years. And that takes in things as diverse as the inquiry into Aboriginal deaths in custody, right through to the child migrant scheme that happened in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And also then, of course, the the 2017 Royal Commission. So you try to explain this idea that I'm looking at. And most faculties and schools and departments just shake their head and go I don't know where that fits in Australia we have very limited record keeping slash archival think tanks or schools where research into that sort of space is supported so it's not an easy fit to find someone that would take this on so that was a challenge I finally found a home at at the Australian Catholic University and the law faculty, which I'm absolutely over the moon about because, again, it gives a bit of credence to what I'm talking about. But I've been faced with the challenge of explaining to lawyers what record-keeping is all about. So that took me aback to start with because I'd become so accustomed to talking about record-keeping to people who understood what I was talking about that I was using shortcut terms with these lawyers who were looking at me as if I'd lost the plot. So it was a nice reminder that you can't take your own professional bubble for granted, that you have to communicate and you have to anticipate that people don't understand what you're talking about. One of the other challenges I had was that a very dear friend of mine who had done her PhD about 25 years or so ago and had found herself a niche in amongst one of the the archival schools in Australia and had agreed to become a co-supervisor to provide that archival lens, that record-keeping sort of practical support in terms of this PhD, she passed away from stomach cancer. So there was trying to find a home, there was trying to find someone who could support me academically, 
And then, of course, I'm a single mum. So, you know, my son takes precedence in a lot of uh, instances. You know, he's just about to do his HSC. So the idea of me putting him to one side and saying, well, just hold that thought, I'm in the middle of trying to write a chapter, isn't going to wash. So challenges, yes, but, you know, this thing about getting this PhD done and proving to myself that I have something to say and that I can say it well is enough to keep driving me to do whatever it is that I do and to find time to do it. So most Saturdays I spend time actually working on data sets and pulling other bits and pieces together I finally managed to rope my son into coming too so that he can do some study I don't know how well it's going to go but anyway we we still do that and you actually don't spend many days without doing at least an hour or two on something so it's just the the motivation to keep going and just a little bit at a time and it does actually all it up and eventually it works and I think what you were saying before, when you took that risk early, when the person said to you, well, why don't you take this three weeks because it might be a risk, but why have you done the study if you're not going to try yeah. and give it your best shot? I guess the other thing you're talking about here is the PhD, the motivation to do that is to prove things to yourself. But also when, you know, you have a reputation already uh, within Westpac and in many other circles because you've been involved very much with the you know, professional association, done some work internationally with the association. So you are more likely then to be called upon as a consultant because you've got that credibility of having a PhD. That would be nice. It's not the entire motivation, but it would be, that would be a lovely thing to then progress towards. I used to think that, and this is again, shades of my father, that if you undertook academic level study, you would automatically become an academic But I actually think that there's a whole lot of space where that kind of rigour can be applied in so many, many better um, locations. You know, the faith-based organisations that I used to work for are now belatedly coming around to the idea that they need to improve their record-keeping practices. So having someone who has passed that academic sort of benchmark, I guess, to then come towards them and say, here, look, here's how you can practically change your record-keeping practice, and I'm speaking to you from experience as well as study, that is much more well-received than someone who has come from completely outside that records-keeping space and is then imposing something upon them that they themselves don't understand. Having conversations like this, you know, saying to people that might come after me or, or, or us that you can't naturally assume that doing a higher degree by research is going to automatically land you an academic role. You don't necessarily have to do that or need to do that. You can apply what you've learned and the skills that you've learned in the process in the workplace. I've come to the point where people now at Westpac come to me and go, I've got all this stuff from multiple generations of people who've worked in the bank. What do I do with it? How do I deal with it? So it's those sorts of things that you can apply. I mean, that, that's really low-level stuff, but it, it is actually about starting them on that journey. So it's about a legacy and a platform, I think, is the most important thing. Yes, and I'm glad you've talked about that because particularly now, you know, universities aren't faring very well and people are told within universities worldwide that the PhD is a, an apprenticeship for academia. 
And yes, to some extent it can be, but it's so much more. And you've got colleagues within Westpac, I know some of them, that have PhDs. They're everywhere. And they have this higher order of thinking, they have problem solving, they have research skills, analytical skills. There's such a list. And of course, who they are matters. You know, I've often said it's you plus your PhD. You know, you've got to have all those good human qualities as well. But, you know, this is the thing that there are so many opportunities, but people just have to understand who they are, which is what you've illustrated so well. I know who I am. I know what matters to me. I know where my strengths lie and where I get excited and my followed paths that, that sometimes being risky, I can't see ahead, but I'll just give it a go. And then these opportunities open up that you could never have ever had if you hadn't taken those first steps. I like that you said that isn't the main reason. The main reason is because it's something you're driven to do. So what comes out of it, you can't know. And that's how careers tend to unfold. You have an idea of who you are, what matters to you, what skills you want to develop. You then might talk to someone, you run into someone, you meet someone when you start an archive (laughs) subject. And those are the things that will help you along the way but you can't have a prescription. People think this will be the case. And then people often get frustrated and and even bitter because what they had planned didn't work out exactly as they planned it. So it is about having a bit of a plan, but it's got to be loose enough to take opportunities as they arise and recognise where they fit you and where they don't fit you. And I think you've really done that. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, just one more thing I'd say is that sometimes along that journey, even though you might think that you're on one track, Things pop up and you can't, like having a baby, and you can't just assume that you're going to continue on on that path that you thought you'd be on. You know, I, I had my degree, I had this great job, I was working at State Records, they offered me a full-time position, and then I looked at Angus, who was about two and a half, and I thought, oh, that's not family-friendly, I can't do that. So you've got to take a step back, but then another window opens. I ended up putting a lot of my energies into, as you said, the profession, And that led to some amazing, amazing opportunities, which, you know, weren't financially rewarding, but certainly were personally and career rewarding. If I look back at my career, it doesn't look like it's this beautiful natural progression through, you know, a bigger and better archive or or however you want to look at it. The experiences that you gain along the way are the thing that actually informed where I am now. So I wouldn't take what looked like a setback, um, I wouldn't now take that as a setback. I'd just literally take that as a sideways step and go with it. So you never know. You never do. And look where we are now. Indeed. So having worked across different sectors, what have you learned about the different needs of each? You talked about how Westpac has changed, you know, such an old organisation and you can look back at the history. So having worked in the different places, what would you say you've learned about each of them the different sectors? Oh, that's a hard one. I think, obviously, you know, the product of what they do is different. But to me, as I said earlier, all of it feeds into that sum total that we look at as as Australians and go, oh, yeah, that's us. You know, you've got the Catholic Church that's provided education and welfare services and healthcare services as well as pastoral services Mm -hmm. since they were invited here in opposition to the Anglican military, if you like, in the 1820s and 1830s. You know, that's a huge thread. You've got the economic history that comes from this organisation. You've got mining history and, and, and employment history that comes from organisations like BHP. I think all of them are the same. They're all interested in, I know this sounds coy, but they are actually interested in doing their absolute best. It doesn't always work out, as we know, but in terms of understanding how this 
mainly white Western outpost in the middle of the Pacific that plumped itself onto Indigenous land became the country that we recognise today. That's the sum of many, 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 many parts. And all of the organisations that I've worked for have contributed to that and want to be recognised for having contributed to that, even if they don't actually recognise that. The, the disconnect happens when they realise that the only way to be able to contribute to, contribute to that is through leaving a, a documentary heritage legacy. They just assume that everyone will remember and that's actually not what happens. In, in Europe, of course, you know, they're dealing with stuff that's thousands of years old and in Asia they're aware, Indigenous people are aware that who we are today is literally built upon the people that have come before us and I think we're a bit slow in recognising that and embracing that as a huge positive here. And I would hope that eventually as, as we mature, mature as a nation, that framework of temporariness disappears and we have a bit more of a, a long-term strategy, long-term thinking, long-term appreciation. You look at our built heritage as a classic example. You know, Sydney is, is full of buildings that are here today, gone tomorrow. In Europe, that just would not happen. And that is the most obvious visual example of a, re a reflection of a culture that values its history. So I would like to see that change, hopefully. I keep repeating myself, but most organisations that I work for would like to be recognised for the part that they've played in building who we are. You mentioned the white culture that came in just over Aboriginal land and that Indigenous people recognise the culture of today is built upon, you know, many thousands of years we're seeing people being really appalled at the Duke and Gorge, the loss of ancient trees yes, and how they're actually so highly important and valued by the first peoples. And I think there's a shift where it's beginning to matter to those that have come to Australia and, you know, now think of it as a whole and all of those histories are really important to shift people's thinking, I think. Absolutely. You know, one of the, the really cool things that I got to do when I was involved with the international organisation was to go to, to Curacao, which is in the Netherlands Antilles. And I, we spent an evening watching people dance and they were not just cultural dancers in the way that we would think costumes and all of that sort of thing. This was actually them telling us their history through dance and that was their version of a record and that really jolted me into realising that it's not just paper that matters, it's absolutely everything else. So if we can embrace those sorts of things, I think we're on, on the right path. Oh, it's absolutely fascinating. I'm so interested in your story and I'm sure other people will be. And hopefully now we'll be more aware of, of keeping records today that will be the history we look back on tomorrow. I hope so. <laughs> And you're doing your part there. <laughs> doing my best, indeed. So it's been a great pleasure. So thank you very much. Thank you, Sally, and thank you for listening to me. It's wonderful. You have just listened to an episode of the Resourceful HDR podcast about the career and employment experiences of high-degree researchers, that is, Master of Research, PhD and Professional Doctorate candidates, graduates and others in the HDR ecosystem. You can also find me on Twitter as ResourcefulHDR and on LinkedIn, Sally Purcell at Macquarie University. Macquarie University students and staff can also access the HDR Professional Development iLearn site. Mm -hmm.